In the early 1960s, the physicist and future Nobel laureate Richard Feynman was asked to spruce up the physics curriculum at the California Institute of Technology. While the introductory course had traditionally begun with a historical survey of developments within the discipline, Feynman began the course in a manner that was more abstract, even poetic. The eminent professor invited his students to reflect on this question. If humanity ceased to exist, what single sentence would you want to pass along to whatever sentient creatures succeeded our species? Feynman's suggestion was that the most succinct articulation of human knowledge was the atomic theory, that everything is made of atoms, that atoms are in constant motion, and that atoms, while drawn to one another, create volatile reactions when squeezed too closely together. Feynman's rationale was that from these essential principles, one could extrapolate much about what science understands about the world. The motion of atoms, for instance, allows us to understand electricity and would presumably enable our theoretical successors to do the same. Of course, there are limits to what the atomic theory can explain. The concepts of beauty, wonder, and love come to mind immediately. Moreover, I'm struck that Feynman's response seems primarily concerned with equipping our successors to recreate the world we currently have. At its core, the atomic theory is concerned with practical realities. One wonders if we shouldn't want more for those who come after us. Nevertheless, I've been intrigued by Feynman's thought experiment ever since I heard about it. And I've been wondering, what sentence would we pass along to describe the church? And it occurs to me that one could do worse than that verse that begins this morning's reading from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy that we feel before our God because of you. Now, it is possible that there are passages of Scripture that more explicitly outline the contours of our faith, but these words from Thessalonians, which are among the oldest in the New Testament, these words reveal what the church looks like at her very best. From each section of this question, we can extrapolate something essential about what the church is supposed to be. Paul begins by asking, how can we thank God enough? This points to the primary vocation of the community of faith, the faithful, to give thanks to God. But the addition of enough allows us to recognize that God is doing more than we can possibly account for. That God is, if you will, 
exceeding our expectations. And for what are we giving thanks? For you, Paul writes, for the other members of the church, those with whom we share this life and call. And the reason we give thanks for those other members of the church is not because of anything that they have done for us, but because of the joy we feel for the way that God has acted in their life. There's a startling level of mutuality in this deceptively simple verse. Paul is giving thanks for the joy he feels because God has transformed the lives of other people. From this single verse, in other words, we extrapolate some essential characteristics of the church. The church is thankful. The church is unselfish. The church is joyful. And the church is deeply aware of the possibility that God can act in ways that we do not expect. And it is this last point that makes the church such a unique institution. In general, human beings anticipate that events will unfold in a particular order. We tend to be if-then thinkers. If this occurs, then this will follow. And this is all well and good until things start happening in ways that we do not expect. When the world feels like it is falling apart because things aren't going according to our plan. This chaos is what Jesus describes in this morning's reading from Luke's gospel. While this passage is certainly a warning about what it will look like when the Son of Man returns, it is also a description of what happens when the world no longer makes sense. Jesus refers to confusion and distress, fear and foreboding, all perfectly reasonable responses when events no longer unfold the way we expect them to. Nevertheless, Jesus insists that when we experience chaos and uncertainty, our proper posture is to lift up our heads with the confidence that our redemption is drawing near. Indeed, when the world stops making sense, Jesus challenges us not to be weighed down with the worries of life. And the only way we can do that is if we reframe our expectations about the world. And this is where the church steps in. The church's unique witness is that we expect God to act in ways that surprise us. We expect that God will act in ways that surprise us. Our souls wait on the Lord to reveal a purpose that we may not have imagined. And ultimately, this is the point of the season that we begin today. Advent is a time of waiting. 
And on one level, this is about carefully marking those weeks before Christmas, which admittedly can feel a little like liturgical obstinacy. As the surrounding culture becomes more and more saturated with Christmas cheer, the church can feel like a lonely island of penitence and expectation, a place for liturgical sticklers and killjoys. But waiting is not just about holding off on doing something that we want to do. Waiting can be fruitful and productive on its own. One of the most important skills one has to learn about cooking, for instance, is the importance of waiting, letting the meat rest before you carve it, letting the dough rest so that the flour can fully saturate with water. Waiting is often the hidden ingredient that allows things to taste the way they are supposed to taste. And what is most intriguing to me is that waiting requires us to relinquish control, to trust that there is something occurring beyond our direct influence, that waiting is accomplishing something we could not do on our own. At its core, Advent is about this kind of waiting. More than a countdown to Christmas, Advent is a season in which we acknowledge that life does not always unfold on our terms or on our timeline. Because Advent begins in November this year, many of us have Advent calendars that we won't be able to start using until the fourth day of Advent on Wednesday. And part of me thinks this is just right. Because rather than simply delaying gratification before our celebration of Christmas, Advent is about cultivating the discipline of waiting. The discipline of trusting that there is a deep and unfolding reality happening outside our influence. When Advent is a mere countdown to Christmas, it ends, up about, it ends up being about the world we currently have. Our call during Advent is to wait upon the world that God is bringing into being, a world that might not look like the one we currently inhabit. During Advent, we wait, not for a particular event, not for a particular result, but for God to act in ways that surprise and challenge us.